Life is full of questions. Are we there yet? What's for lunch? Will you marry me? Did you get the job? Is it a boy or a girl? Have you been to the doctor? Is it malignant? When are you going to retire? Is that mold growing in our son's bedroom? Did you read her Instagram story? Can you believe what she's wearing to church on Easter Sunday? Life is full of questions. I contend this morning that the most basic fundamental question that you must ask is who is Jesus? The Bible is not silent on that answer. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The Gospels record his life, ministry, and work on the cross. The rest of the New Testament points to his inevitable return and his overwhelming influence in every aspect of our lives. The truth of the matter is the Bible is all about Jesus. The Bible has been given to you to answer that fundamental question, who is Jesus? It's appropriate for us to continue our nine-part sermon series in Colossians. We began this sermon series last Sunday. It's simply entitled, The Supremacy of Christ. The purpose of this letter to the Colossian church is to communicate the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just that he is sufficient, he is sovereign. It's not just that he is prominent, he is preeminent. The entire letter can be summed up in this statement. Jesus plus nothing equals everything you need. Jesus plus nothing equals everything you need. This morning I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 1. I want to read verses 15 to 23. I want to preach a sermon that's entitled, Jesus, the one and only. Colossians chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 15. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Colossians chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 15. I'll conclude at verse 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once... You were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. 
there may not be a higher Christological passage in all the Bible than the one I just read for you. It was written by a man by the name of Paul. He was in a Roman jail cell. He was being visited by the pastor of the Colossian church, a man by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras was telling Paul all the good things that were happening at the church, but he was communicating that in these recent days, there had been some false prophets trying to infiltrate the church, sowing uh, doubts to the divinity of Jesus, calling into question his supremacy and his sufficiency for salvation. So in response, Paul writes this letter. This letter is written to communicate the identity of Jesus. Over the next few moments, I want to give you four statements. Four statements about the identity of Jesus, and I'm going to tie and tether them right to this text. The first statement is this, that Jesus is our divine creator. Jesus is our divine creator. We see this in verses 15, 16, and 17 of our passage. Paul simply begins by writing, stating, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, both the Old Testament and the New Testament give testimony that God is spirit, that he is invisible. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word image can better be understood as stamp. It literally means exact representation. So Paul is saying that Jesus is the exact representation of God. There's no modification. There's no adjustment. There are no alterations. There are no changes. There are no additions. There are no subtractions. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. Jesus never had an identity crisis. He never had to go sow his wild oats. He never had to go find himself. He always knew precisely who he was, for he is the God-man. We speak of him as very God and very man, completely God and completely human. He is God wrapped in skin. He is God wrapped in flesh. He has to be the God-man in order to secure your salvation. Because he is God, God is the only one capable of paying your sin debt. He's the only one with the currency and the cachet to accomplish the task. And because he is fully man, he is the only one suitable to serve as your substitute, to die in your place. He is very God and very man. Jesus is not a man who became God. There have been none of those. He's not merely a godly man. There have been a lot of those. He is the one and only God-man. He's in a class all by himself. He is Jesus, the one and only. He is the divine creator, for he is the image of the invisible God. In verse 15, Paul goes on to say that he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, don't misunderstand that word firstborn. It does not mean born first. The word firstborn means first in rank and priority. That Jesus is first over creation because he's the creator of all things in creation. He is the creator of all things. Therefore, no one can outrank him. No one can surpass him. No one can be higher than him. No one can be greater than him. No one can be more powerful than him. He is Jesus, the one and only. He is our divine creator. He's the firstborn over all creation. There's nobody like him. He's in a class, all by himself. He created all things, Paul writes. All things were made by 
him. He made all things visible and invisible, seen and unseen, in heaven and on earth. He made the stars, the moon, the sky. He, he made the solar system, the galaxy, the universe. He made everything. He made everything in this world. He made everything beyond this world. He made all things. It is Jesus who made the 200-ton blue whale. It is Jesus who made the teeny tiny mosquito. I don't know why he made them, but he did. He made all things. He made the tallest redwood tree. He made the shortest dandelion in the field. Jesus made the 10,000 species of birds. He made the 28,000 different types of fish. He's the one who made 300,000 kinds of plants. He is the one who crafted and created 900,000 different types of insects. He's the one who made 7.7 million different species of animals. He's the one that made every human, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. Jesus made everything. He is the divine creator. All things were made by him. And the Bible says that all things were made for him. He didn't just make all things, but he made all things for his glory. He made all things to testify to the goodness of God Almighty. You, my friend, were made by Christ, and you were made for the glory of Christ. You were crafted, you were formed, you were created to give glory to God Almighty. You are special in God's sight. He made you on purpose. He made you for a purpose. You are not an accident. You are not found under a rock. I don't care what your siblings told you. You were not delivered by a stork. You weren't found under a mat. You were made specifically by Christ to glorify Christ both now and forevermore. That is your purpose. You have been made so you may glorify the Lord. All things were made by him and for him. He is before all things, Paul writes. And in him, being Jesus, all things hold together. He is before all things because he's the creator of all things. Nothing in creation can catch up with the creator. Nothing in creation can surpass him. He is before us. He is above us. He is surrounding us. He is beneath us. He is all around us. He is everywhere. He is in front of us, Paul writes. And in him, all things hold together. Jesus is the gorilla glue of the universe. He holds everything together. You know that spiritual song, don't you? He's got the whole world in his hands. That's not just a good song. That's theology put to music. That's good theology. He's got the whole world in his hands. The fact that we can look at creation. Creation shouts, there is a creator. If you look at creation, creation demands that there must be a creator. If you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, there's no way that this is just happenstance. There's no way that this just kind of accidentally came to be. No, there is so much fine-tuning in the universe that did you know? Did you know that if the earth stopped rotating 
we would either freeze or burn in moments. Did you know that if the earth was no longer tilted 23 degrees on its axis, then life as we know it would cease to exist? Did you know that if the moon was any closer to the earth, then we would have tidal waves of tsunami proportion on a regular basis? Did you realize that if the earth was just any bit closer to the sun, or if the sun was any hotter than its 10,000 degree Fahrenheit surface, that you and I would become a, a ball of fire and burn up in moments. And my question to you this morning is, who is keeping all this in check? The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, it is Jesus who holds all things together. Things that you see and things that you don't see. Jesus is the one behind it all. He's the one holding everything together. Otherwise, everything will become unglued and spin out into oblivion. It is Jesus who holds all this together. He is a creator of everything big and small. He's a creator of everything seen and unseen. He's a creator not only of the cosmos, he's also the creator of you. He's the one who holds you together. He holds you together physically, literally, emotionally. He holds you together spiritually and mentally. He's the one that keeps your heart pumping. He's the one that keeps your lungs breathing. He's the one that keeps your legs moving. He's the one that keeps your brain waving. He's the one that keeps your skin stuck together. He's the one that holds you together. If it wasn't for Jesus, you would fall apart. Not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. How does Jesus hold you together? He holds you together by his power. He holds you together by his word. In your hands, you have the Bible. It's the very word of God. It's a gift from the Lord Almighty. And I'll just, in a very practical way, make this statement that whenever I find a Bible that is falling apart, it's usually owned by someone who's not. When I find a Bible from a person and that Bible is falling apart because of excess use, falling apart because you've you have, you have dove into it. You, you, you have been rooted in it. When I find a Bible that's falling apart, it usually belongs to a person who is not. Because Jesus holds us together. It is Jesus who is our divine creator. But secondly, Paul says that Jesus is our sufficient Savior. This is in verses 18 and 19. I referenced earlier uh, that Paul had heard that some false teachers were trying to invade the local church. Uh, later historians would call them Gnostics. They taught that the way you get to God is through knowledge. They claimed that God gave various emanations. The word emanation means uh, teachings or teacher or angel or messenger. They acknowledged that Jesus was from God. But these Gnostics claimed that he was only one of many emanations, one of many teachers. And he gave some good teaching, and you've got to know that teaching. But he is kind of like one rung on a ladder that you've got to build on Jesus and get to something else. Because God will give a 
higher, a deeper emanation, teaching spirit that will come from him. And so these Gnostics, who the church fathers called heretics, were peddling a gospel that was contrary to anything you read in your scripture. In so many words, what the Apostle Paul is writing in our passage is that Jesus is not another rung on the ladder. He's the whole cotton-picking ladder. He's the only way that anybody can get to God. He is the only sufficient Savior. He uses terminology like this. He is, being Jesus, he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the head of the body. Yes, he's on top of the body, but he also is the one giving guidance, giving growth, giving direction, giving insight. He is the head of the body. This imagery that the people of God are like uh, a body is a common New Testament analogy. In fact, Paul uses it various places, and sometimes he elaborates on the analogy. He says that just as the body has different parts, but they all work together for one purpose, so the body of Christ has many members, but we all work together and go in one direction and accomplish one purpose. And, and Paul says that some are the hands of Christ, others are the feet of Christ, and still there are eyes of Christ and nose of Christ and ears of Christ. And in the New Testament, Paul says the ear can't say to the nose, I don't need you. Because if you say to your nose, I don't need you, where's the sense of smell going to be? The point is, is that we need one another. We're incomplete without each other. We are many parts, but we are one body. Now you realize that I am kind of a twisted preacher, and there are times that analogies in my mind, they go maybe a little bit too far, but when I think about the body of Christ, I just can't help but ask the question, Jesus, uh, who among us is your armpit? Who among us is the rump? Now, like you, I've got a few suggestions of who the candidates could be. But need I digress? <laughs> the point of the passage in Colossians is that Paul is saying that Jesus is the head of the body. He's the one that gives growth and direction. He is the one who is the sufficient Savior. For in verse 18, he says that Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. Once again, to use that word firstborn, it means first in rank and first in priority. Certainly, you would have to agree with me that prior to Easter Sunday, there were other people that were raised from the dead. You think about the widow's son in Zarephath, or Lazarus in Bethany, or Jairus' daughter when Jesus went in and said to that dead corpse, Talitha Kaum, little girl, get up, and she got up, and she ran around the room. Certainly, all that took place before Easter Sunday. But what all those people have in common is that they were raised only to die again. Paul says that Jesus is the sufficient Savior, for he is the firstborn among the dead, and Jesus was raised on Easter Sunday never to taste death again. Isn't that why we're here this morning? Because we acknowledge and we claim that the tomb is empty. We believe it with every fiber of our being. It makes all the difference in the world. Our Christian faith rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection. 
If somebody could prove that the resurrection didn't happen, then everything about our faith would falter and fail. But nobody can prove it because the bones of Jesus have never been found. Do you know why? Because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. He is a sufficient Savior. So that Paul writes that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The resurrection is the validation of the work of Jesus on the cross of Christ. The fact that God raised Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit from the dead on the third day is evidence, is validation, is proof that everything Jesus accomplished on the cross is secure. He is the sufficient Savior. Not only is Jesus the divine creator and sufficient Savior, but he, third, is the righteous reconciler. You find this in verses 20 through 22 of our passage. Jesus is the righteous reconciler. If I were to ask you, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? The simple, straightforward answer is this, to reconcile sinners to the Savior. The reason Jesus died on the cross was to reconcile sinners like you and a sinner like me to a holy Savior like God. The word reconcile means to make peace between warring parties. To reconcile is to make peace because there is war and people are at odds. And so a reconciler comes in and they try to bring everybody to the table and then they try to unite and come to terms of agreement and they try to make peace between warring parties. Because of your sin, you're at war with God. Because of your evil, you are at odds with God. Paul says it's the evil in your mind that works out in the evil behavior of your hands and habits. It gives evidence that you're at war with God. God is so holy that he can't allow your sinfulness to be in his presence unmitigated. Because he is so holy and because his righteousness is so pure, that, that he can't be in the presence of sinful disobedience. So because of that, we're, we're at odds with God. We're at war with God. We should have eternal condemnation in a place called hell because of our sin against a holy God. And i got to be honest with you. There are some people that, that really have a hard time wrapping their mind around the fact that because we aren't perfect, we can't be in God's presence. I mean, nobody is perfect, we say. And imperfect people hurt us all the time. They disappoint us. They ridicule us. They shame us. They harm us. And we forgive them, don't we? And nobody has to die for it. So why can't God just forgive us and sweep all of our sin under the carpet? To answer that question, let me tell you a story. It's a story that was told by a friend, David Platt. One day David was in a foreign country. He was witnessing to a cab driver. That cab driver was having a difficult time contemplating, thinking, wrapping his mind around the reality that it was his sin that would send him to hell. That it is his sin that made him worthy of condemnation from a holy God. 
And so David gave this analogy. He said to the cab driver, if I were to right now slap you across the face, what would happen? The cab driver said, I would kick you out of my cab. All right, fair enough. If I were to go over there and slap that police officer across the face, what would happen to me? The cab driver said, you'd be arrested. If I gained an audience with your king and somehow was able to approach him and slap him across the face, what would happen to me? The cab driver said, you would die. If our sin is a slap across the holy face of a holy God, what should be the punishment? And the cab driver said, I see your point. See, if we acknowledge that God is that holy and that we are that sinful, and by our actions we are slapping God across the face, we are worthy of the condemnation that we actually deserve. But Jesus is the righteous reconciler. He came to make peace where there were warring parties. You know, sometimes marriage dissolves in divorce, doesn't it? And sometimes the reason for that divorce is irreconcilable differences. The two parties, the husband and the wife, they just could not come to terms of agreement. And so they separated, they divorced because of irreconcilable differences. On this Easter Sunday morning, I am so thankful to tell you that we serve a God who never got up from the table and walked away from humanity claiming irreconcilable differences. Our God said, you know what? I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to send my son, your Savior. He's going to come and take the punishment that you deserve. The innocent one is going to be declared guilty so that we who are guilty may be declared innocent in God's sight. He who knew no sin will become your sin so that we might become the very righteousness of Christ. And so Jesus died in our place. He died as our substitute. We cannot understand the events of Good Friday apart from substitutionary atonement that Jesus dangled on the cross between two thieves in our place and literally in those few hours on that faithful Friday he took our hell upon himself James Boyce said it this way that Jesus endured our hell so we may enjoy his heaven and Jesus is the righteous reconciler he came so that we may be reconciled to God so that we may be family of God so we may be a friend of God so we may be accepted in God's sight Jesus came and he died on the cross for your sins and for mine taking the punishment that you deserve he took it upon himself and then on the third day he hit death in the face and he came out of the tomb victorious over all things to validate the fact that he is the righteous reconciler. Paul goes on to say that this righteous reconciler is one who took us even though we were alienated from God and he brought us to God. We were alienated, Paul writes. The word alienated means separated, cut off, severed. We were severed from God, separated from God because of our sin. Yet Jesus, the righteous reconciler, came. And by his actions, we went from being alienated to being accepted in God's sight. Now, how accepted does God regard you? How close does God draw you? Well, look again in verses 20 to 22. Paul says, That because of what Jesus did for us, 
We are holy in his sight. We are without blemish. We are free from all accusations. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a happy hallelujah moment to think that, listen, I know that I am not holy. I am not perfect. I am sinful to the core. I know that I am blemished. I am flawed. And I am definitely guilty of accusation. The accusations that are leveled against me are true. They're valid. But in Jesus Christ, his righteousness becomes my righteousness. His innocence becomes my innocence. His holiness becomes my holiness. And not just to me, but to anybody who claims faith in Jesus Christ so that when God looks at you, he sees you as holy as Jesus. He sees you as unblemished as the Lord. He sees you as free from accusation as the innocent, righteous Jesus Christ. Jesus has given you his innocence, his righteousness, his uh, guilt-free existence, and that's what you have in the righteous reconciler of Jesus Christ. Jesus is your righteous reconciler. You can't be good enough. You can't be righteous enough to enter into God's kingdom. I mean, please don't think that somehow you can do more good than bad and somehow tip the scales in your favor and demand that God let you into his heaven. There's no way we can be good enough. But someone who is good enough paid a sin debt because he is good enough to reconcile you to God. Though you were alienated from God, he makes you accepted by God. I've got one more verse. I've got one more point. It's in verse 23, and the fourth point is this, that Jesus is the gospel giver. Jesus is the gospel giver. If he's going to give you something, what is your job? You must receive it. It was John R.W. Stott who said the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. If grace offers you the gospel, by faith you accept it. If grace offers you forgiveness, by faith you accept it. If grace offers you innocence in the sight of God, by faith you accept it. If grace offers you purpose in this world, by faith you accept it. If grace offers you a home in heaven, by grace, by faith you accept it. Now, faith's only function is to accept what grace offers. And because of the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb of Easter Sunday, Jesus has given you the gospel. And you have to receive it. You have to accept it. Paul literally writes it, uh, we continue in the faith. That's not a works-based salvation. That's not an inclination that somehow sanctification is earned. No, that's just a reminder that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's not the, that's not the last step. It's just the first step. That the purpose of you living with the Lord is for you to live with him both now and forevermore. Every day that you walk this sod until he takes you home to heaven, we continue in the faith. Paul is telling the church, we don't drop out of the faith. We don't pull back from the faith. We don't shrink away from the faith. We don't call into question the faith. We, we don't turn our back on the faith. No, no, we continue in the faith. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you continue in the faith of our Lord. This is the gospel. 
Paul writes. This is the gospel that's been proclaimed to you. This is the gospel upon which you've taken your stand. This is the gospel. That though he died on Friday, he got up on Sunday. This is the gospel. That he who knew no sin became your sin for you so that you may be his righteousness. This is the gospel. That though you are guilty of sin, you can be declared innocent in God's sight by faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. This is the gospel. It's the good news that though you are a sinner, you can be declared a saint in the sight of God and you can wear the royal righteous robes of Jesus Christ, King Jesus, and you can do that by faith. This is the gospel. It's not that we've earned it, but we have received it. This is the gospel. It's not that it's something that, that we have to build upon. It is something that's been fully given to us. This is the gospel. It's the gospel that holds me. It's the gospel that molds me. It's the gospel that shapes me. It's the gospel that convinces me. It is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It tells me that death could not stop him, that the devil could not keep him, that the stone could not conceal him, that the grave could not uh, thwart him, that Jesus is victorious over all things. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that prompts me to believe that I serve a risen Savior and he's in the world today and I know that he is living. Whatever men may say, I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer and just the time I need him. He's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks to me a long life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because, just because, just because he lives. Life is full of questions. You'll entertain hundreds of them before the day is out. But the most important question that you can ask and you have to answer is who is Jesus? Is he for real or is he a phony? Is he a hoax? Or is he the Holy One? Who is Jesus? Paul writes this passage of this letter to communicate to this church that Jesus is our divine creator. He is our sufficient savior. He, uh, he is our righteous reconciler. And he is our gospel giver. And by faith, we accept him. Receive him, believe upon him, and continue in the faith. This morning I wonder, as I look at a crowd of this size, I have to believe there just might be a few people, maybe more than a few, who have never fully trusted Jesus for salvation. Today can be the day of your salvation. Will you fully relinquish all of your goals, dreams, and desires and attempts of goodness and you fully fall at the feet of Christ, the resurrected Christ. Today can be the day of your salvation. I can't think of a better day than Easter Sunday than for you to be saved.
And if that's you, friend, you've been going your own way, you've been doing your own thing, in essence, you've been your own God. And it's left behind a trail of heartache and headache and disappointment and disillusionment. And somehow, some way, you're here this morning. Maybe somebody drug you here, but you're here this morning and you hear about this Jesus, this resurrected Lord. He is your Savior, and today you can receive Him by faith. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. There'll be some ministers that will stand down front. As soon as that song begins to play, Will you please get up out of your seat, come to the aisle and walk down, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I, I want to trust that Jesus. I surrender to him all that I am and I believe in him. If that's you, then today can be the day of your salvation. There may be somebody here, uh, you're a believer, but because of life and the grind of life, you've just, uh, you've just forgotten how good Jesus is. The altar's open for you to come and to pray. Maybe you need to pray for yourself. Maybe you're praying for somebody else. Maybe you're praying for a family member. Maybe you're praying for a crisis. Maybe you're praying for an upcoming concern. Whatever it is, you can cast all your cares upon the Lord. Maybe you need to come and join this church. This is the place where God is leading you to to plant and to plop and to uh, have deep roots right here and to serve the world from this location. And if that's you, then I want you to join the church today. There may be somebody here who's saying, you know what, God is calling me, calling me to full-time ministry, calling me to mission work, calling me to do something for him, and and it's just all over me, and I've just got to let somebody know. Let us know today that God is calling you to do something spectacular in his kingdom. Whatever it is that King Jesus, the resurrected Lord, is asking of you, won't you follow in faithful obedience? Because he, being Jesus, is the Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Lord, we pray that you will move and have your way. Let us be obedient to you and respond uh, to your grace with faith. In Jesus' name, amen.